Good evening, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul has been dealing with the problem of pride and division in the church. Last week, in the first five verses of chapter 4, we saw him address judgmentalism. Proud people are quick to judge others, and Paul had been on the receiving end of that at Corinth. Last time, therefore, he taught us how to deal with judgmentalism when we are on the receiving end. He taught us how to live free from the tyranny of other people's opinions by remembering and living by the fact that the only opinion that really matters is the opinion of Almighty God himself. And when we get that clear in our own thinking, we can live free from the court of public opinion, free from the court of our own private judgments. The only court that matters is the well-done, good and faithful servant of our heavenly master. We live for the commendation of God. Today, in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, Paul looks at the other side of the coin, of judgmentalism and pride. Last week was how we deal with it when we're on the receiving end. This week it's about going after the proud hearts, the pride, the judgmentalism that festers in our own hearts. Pride is like a dandelion. You you can mow the lawn, cut the head off, but unless you get the root, it will come back time and time again. So Paul wants us to have root change. In these two verses, verses 6 and 7, Paul offers us four strategies to kill pride. And that's what he, that has been dominating, that's his theme in the opening section of 1 Corinthians, the sin of pride that leads to division and judgmentalism. There is this ugly self-exalting culture that thrives in the congregations of Corinth and it is tearing them apart. It is becoming a toxic situation. So with some urgency in our text, Paul offers us four strategies to deal with the root of the persistent weed of pride in our hearts and in our fellowship. First of all, we are to study the example of others. Verse 6, is, Paul speaks about he's applied these things to himself and Apollos for your benefit, brethren. If you're like me, I don't know whether you suddenly realise when you're having a teachable moment with one of your children that you suddenly remember that realize that you're exactly the same you look exactly the same you sound exactly the same as your father before you because we're hardwired to learn from the example of others especially our parents and Paul uses that very metaphor to describe his relationship to the church at Corinth that he is their father and they are his children in the Lord and like children learning from a parent Paul wants them to learn how to live the Christian life from him and other faithful leaders like Apollos. Now, you remember the kind of things that Paul has been telling us about his ministry so far in 1 Corinthians. His preaching wasn't impressive, like the great orators which with, which, with which they were so familiar. Rather, he came to them without lofty speech or wisdom, no, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If you remember, he called himself in chapter 2 a farmhand or a construction worker. And in chapter 4, he's a galley slave, an under rower, 
pulling his oar to the beat of his master's drum. And he's also a household slave in a great estate, dispensing the riches of his master's household. The Corinthians wanted rock stars and celebrities, but Paul has been insisting that a gospel minister embraces the cross as his message and as the method of his ministry. Lowly, unimpressive, apparently foolish, but submitting to the will of God. And now he tells the Corinthians why he's been labouring this point. What ought to be true of gospel ministers should be true of every Christian believer. Hebrews 13 verse 7 tells us we're to remember our leaders, those who spoke the word of God to us. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. A minister's teaching ministry is, yes, it's preaching the word of God faithfully, but it's also applying that to his own life. That's a certain thing to be called for, those of us who are preachers and teachers in the church. Paul will say in chapter 4, verse 16, imitate me. Chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Those who minister the word in the pulpit, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, must be able to say the truth that I proclaim, I also seek by God's grace to live. So that you are to imitate me as I imitate Christ. But it's searching for those who listen and receive the ministry of the word. Because if you see the lives of those who teach the word transformed by the truth they teach, then you have to reckon with the truth that the message they proclaim is more than just words. It's more than the accumulation of information. But this truth revolutionises lives. So Paul calls the Corinthians to examine his life and that of Apollos and other faithful leaders as he seeks to model gospel humility so they might follow his example also. Secondly, the second strategy to kill pride at the root is to submit to the rule of the word of God. In verse 6, if you, you know, after you know, apply these things to himself and Apollos for a, their benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That is what Paul's teaching about humble gospel ministry has been all about. That true humility means that we topple self from the throne. Self is ejected from the driver's seat of our own lives and instead the Lord Jesus is behind the wheel. He drives the engine of our lives by his word. We are not to go beyond what is written. The word of God is not pious advice that offers some kind of fuzzy kind of generalizations to be applied as taste and mood dictate now the word of god regulates and directs our life the word of god is our rule jesus rules us by his word we're not to go beyond what is written the government of the church is under the law given to us by king jesus we're not to go beyond what is written in the government of the church in the worship of the church and in our lives, in the moral and spiritual dimensions of our lives as Christian people, our consciences are to be captive to the word of God. Topple self from the throne, set apart Christ as Lord by bending the knee under the rule of the word. And the implications are pretty clear. There is no way to live under the word if we don't read the word and study the word and regularly sit under the preaching of the word. Or to put it more directly, hopefully more clearly, if the word of God, the Bible, has no functional presence in our lives, in our thinking, in our hearts, in our minds, in our routines. If the word of God 
God has no functional presence in our lives, it will not likely bear fruit in our lives either. Those who resolve not to go beyond what is written, who topple self from the throne, submit to the rule of the word of God, the rule of Christ through the Holy Scriptures, instead of finding it restrictive and constraining and joy-killing, no, they say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, the Lord of the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. They can say the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Much to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. A life under the word is a satisfied, satisfied life of joy in obedience to the Lord Jesus, who knows what is best for you and for me. Thirdly, there are no special cases. Look at verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? Now, the Corinthians thought they were pretty special. They boasted in their wisdom. They boasted in their leaders. They boasted in their spirituality. They boasted in their gifts. They thought themselves a cut above the rest. And Paul has to remind them already in chapter 1, verse 26, of the truth concerning them and who they were when they were called to faith in Jesus. Not many of you were wise according to the standards of the world. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God does not believe our own publicity. While we were busy trying to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the pack, so often that very desire to be somebody is the thing that confirms just how like everybody we remain. Who sees anything different in you, Paul asks. This is the bad news for us in a self-esteem culture that has trained us all since infant school to believe that we're all superstars just waiting to be discovered. Before the gaze of God, there is nothing distinguishing in you or me to make him value us at all. He does not love us or cherish us or affirm us because he sees something inherent in us to set us apart from the people that are next to us. If on the last day we saunter into the heavenly courtroom, confident in our own innate charm and loveliness and lovability, we will receive a shock from which we will spend eternity failing to recover. If we're going to deal with our pride problem, then I need to put to bed once and for all the idea that God owes me because I am something special. There are no special cases. Paul says, first of all, study the lives of others. Secondly, submit to the rule of the word of God in our lives. Thirdly, there is no special cases. And fourth, embrace the extravagance of grace. In verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Of all the things you value, name one that is not a gift from God. Name one that is not a donation of sheer grace. But if it is all grace, Paul asks us, if it is all gift, why are you still taking the credit? You didn't earn them. You don't deserve them. Your privileges from the material blessings you enjoy every day 
to your new life in Christ, your adoption into his family, the endowment of the Holy Spirit, the riches of Christian fellowship, the access to life transforming truth and thousand other privileges besides. They're all gifts of grace. We never really will grasp how rich and sweet grace is. We will miss the extravagant wonder of it if we're arguing with God about how great we are. Amazing grace is only amazing when we understand that it does save a wretch like me. When you see that everything I have, I have by grace. I have because of the cross. I have because I was loved when I was unlovely. And I'm loved still because I'm, despite my unloveliness. When you see that, the extravagance of grace, what happens to your pride and your boasting? It shrivels and dies as you understand that the glory belongs to the Lord who redeemed you. Paul said, study the examples of others, imperfect as they may be, because in them we get to see what the pursuit of humility looks like. Be sure to submit, brothers and sisters, to the rule of the word of the Lord. Don't go beyond what is written. Be sure that the Lord Jesus is in the driving seat of your life by being a paper by being a people whose consciences are captive to the word of God. And remember, there are no special cases. Root out the secret boasts of our hearts when we're claiming the credit, taking the praise. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? We are debtors to mercy alone. And finally, and above all, we must embrace the extravagance of grace. Nothing kills boasting like seeing that we deserve only the wrath of God. But instead we receive adopting love, sanctifying love and love that will keep us and preserve us and bring us home to glory. Love that is demonstrated in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Love out of the embrace of which we can never be plucked. When we see that grace upon grace has been lavished on us, where does it put our stupid egos in the end? Not on the throne, but in the dust of humility even while at the same time our hearts soar and mount up to the throne of glory to give praise and honour to the one who has loved us with an everlasting love. There are four strategies here to help us kill pride. May the Lord give us the grace to apply them to that persistent weed of pride festering in our hearts so that the glory might all belong to him.